academic ghetto if you happen to live in Israel. It's life and death, and you are part of it. At the same time, you would never be a storyteller. You would be nothing but a political activist if you have a firm, established, and final opinion on everything, which I happen to have, but only to a some degree. I think it was D.H. Lawrence who said once that while at work on a novel, you must be capable of maintaining perhaps half a dozen conflicting and sometimes contradicting attitudes with the same degree of conviction and passion. And in this respect, my recent book is a substitute for a novel. Because in a funny way, when I did it, I almost liked even what I hated. Now, all this is true for Israel itself. And by God, I didn't have in mind a book when I did those newspaper articles, let apart a translated book, an international book. What I really aimed at was to try to decipher some of the grassroots attitudes of my political opponents in Israel. Not the final conclusions, not the manifested uh, political positions, which I knew, of course, but the gut, sort of gut feelings of the political other in Israel. And in this respect, I probably wrote a travel book, in a sense trying to decipher the political other with a capital O. But obviously, everyone in Israel, in one way or another, got very upset by this book. People just didn't quite know where to place it. For the literary critics, it was weird, if not dangerous, that I step out of my department, where I really belong. What they would call fiction, I would not. They thought, why on earth should a storyteller, a novelist, suddenly turn himself into a traveling journalist, making interviews with people? For some of the journalists, of course, it was dangerous because they felt, and they have a point, that I was invading their very own territory without being properly equipped for it. For some of my fellow doves within the political spectrum in Israel, there was a fierce misunderstanding and a lot of anger. Why on earth should I be lending my own voice and perhaps eloquence to such quote-unquote terrible people as the ones I interviewed on this, uh, for this book? For some of my partners in conversation on the right side or the hawkish side of the political spectrum, they just couldn't believe that I have given them a fair hearing and they still go on and on um, detecting from a, for some kind of explosive device somewhere in between the lines because they can't believe that I couldn't possibly be fair to them. Now to me, as a storyteller, the name of the thing, I wouldn't say the name of the game because it's no game, the name of the thing is being attached and detached at the same time. Forever reminding myself whenever I talked to the sometimes outrageous characters which I met in the process of preparing this book, that with a very slight biographical twist, I would easily be one of them. I could be one of them. They are in my family. And I am in their family, and I may come back to this eventually. 
But I'm not answering your question, Arthur. You asked me about the responses to this book in particular and the responses to Israel as a symbol in general in the outside Israel, or to be more specific, in the Christian world. Well, I've been recently on a promotion tour for this book in Scandinavia. And I had the funny, funny and frightening feeling that yes, indeed, I am regarded as a splinter of a symbol rather than a human being. And my country is expected to be a symbol in one way or another, rather than just a country. Uh, in Finland, of all places, where I made a couple of political statements about my kind of dovish solution to the Israeli-Arab conflict, I was besieged by Finnish lovers of Israel, a Christian lot, who uh, were very fierce with me about my idea of partitioning the country, dividing it between the two people of it. Thank you. How dare you uh, advocate the idea of partition when the promised land is biblically given to the Jews? How could you say that? It's against the book. At the same time, the very same people, those nice pro-Israeli, pro-Jewish uh, group of Christian Finnish missionaries or religious activists say to me that the one thing they could not face really was the fact that Israel has an army. They are great lovers of Israel, but why an army? That doesn't really fit you. You people should be above this. If you only talked love rather than war to the Arabs, everything would have been settled. And that's where I realized that this great, great Finnish Christian love for Israel is just an inch away from good old anti-Semitism. Then later on I went to Sweden on the same tour and I had a fairly similar experience with a Swedish television interviewer who asked me on a live news interview, sort of prime time on Swedish television, how come the Jews became violent? Isn't it really totally opposed to the essence of Jewish non-violent heritage? Now it's not too difficult to turn an Israeli dove into an angry hawk with a question like this. <laughs> and it came right out, out of my guts. And I said to that chap, listen, I get the impression that you people here in Scandinavia, right, left, and center, uh, expect Israel to be the most Christian country on earth, if not the only Christian country on earth in terms of turning the other cheek. And I've got news for you. We happen to not to be a Christian country, whether you like it or not, and you probably don't. All right. The first thing that happened to me the next morning, sort of seven o'clock in the morning, was that the receptionist in my hotel woke me up saying to me that there is a, an elderly gentleman waiting for me in the lobby. So I dressed up quickly and went downstairs to see the elderly gentleman who presented me of all things with two dat keren kayemet. That's a certificate proving that a tree was planted in my honor in some plantation in Israel. So I said, what have I done to deserve it? He, say, he said it was from the Jewish community of Stockholm. But I said, why? He said, 
well, you are not even beginning to understand what have you done by just stating that Israel is not a Christian country. And I was not even beginning to understand that before a couple of hours later I went to the office, the premises of my Swedish publishers, who translated for me the, a kind of headline on the second page, the news page, of almost all the Swedish dailies. Israeli author in Stockholm states, dot, dot, Israel not a Christian country. <laughs> news. And then I get an invitation, a telephone call from the secretary of Sweden's own dear sweet prime minister, Mr. Olof Palme a fellow social democrat who wanted to see me because I criticized some of the things he had done over the last year. All right. There I go to see dear Mr. Palma, who, by the way, had done or conducted or is responsible for at least three outrageous political decisions over the last year. In the first place, he was the first social democrat uh, Prime Minister, to invite Arafat for an official visit, not even beginning to realize the harm he had done by this to the cause of the doves in Israel. We were sort of taught right in our faces, look at your friends. Then dear Mr. Palma made a speech or a statement in the Stockholm Cathedral of all places, comparing Lebanon to Auschwitz. And then, perhaps the lesser of all evils, but the single most irritating one, was the fact that Mr. Palma and his party are in the regular habit of inviting socialist or social democrat delegations for their May Day parade, big thing. And this year, just two days before the occasion, before the May Day, they sent a telex to the Israeli Labour Party opposition uh, delegates not to come because they ca cannot guarantee their security, their personal safety, which was really infuriating. I mean, the bloody men uh, drove uh, two infantry brigades and a number of tanks into Stockholm for Arafat's visit. Into peaceful Stockholm. There was never a tank in Stockholm before, not during the whole existence of Stockholm or since the invention, invention of tanks. And he couldn't guarantee the safety of poor Uzi Bar'am or Dani Rosolio or whatever minor M uh, labor MPs from Israel. So I went to see him. And I said to him over the Arafat business, he expected us, Israeli peaceniks and doves and, and peace now people, to hug him for that. Don't you personally want to establish some kind of a dialogue with Arafat? Is that, what not, you're, you're, is that not what you are all about? And I said, why on earth did you do it? He said, I wanted to get uh, moderation from Arafat. And I was told that if I give him the respectability and the, uh, the um, well, the... Uh, uh, Brigade and tanks. Yeah, and that too. He will issue here in, in Stockholm a far-fetching moderate statement. And I had to tell Mr. Palma, dear Prime Minister, if you really wanted verbal moderation from a guy like Arafat in return for an official reception, you should have demanded this in advance and in cash. <laughs> and then he went on over the business of uh, Lebanon Auschwitz, saying to me or showering me with his Christian background, saying to me, for example, 
that he belongs in an old biblical Lutheran family. Old Testament family, not New Testament ones. And of course, for him it was a terrible experience to uh, watch the Jews of Israel violating the first of the Ten Commandments, mind you, the first, thou shalt not kill. So I had to say to dear Mr. Palmer in a sort of cool tune of voice, Mr. Prime Minister, there is no such commandment in the whole Bible. He said, what? Thou shalt not kill. And I say, Mr. Prime Minister, there is simply no such commandment in the whole of the Bible. Now, he was a, um, baffled, pressed his intercom thing. There, there were just the two of us uh, in the room. And in, in comes rushing his secretary, carrying what must have been his confirmation Swedish Bible in a shabby green leather binding. And he quickly opened it for me and read the fifth, not the first, uh, of the Ten Commandments. Tronen and kolen and kolt. I can't possibly memorize a Swedish. And I said, uh, gentlemen, I know it's in your Bible. It's in every Christian Bible, except it's not there in the original Hebrew Bible. And he said, so what is there in the Hebrew Bible? I said, the Hebrew Bible says, which means thou shalt not commit murder. And there is not even the slightest uh, etymological proximity between the Hebrew verb for commit murder and the Hebrew verb for kill, um, and the whole thing is not just a mistranslation, it's a sheer Christian forgery from first century AD, which went into all the Christian Bibles. It's a forgery. Now the man was so uh, astounded that he gave me an unforgettable line. He said in his amazement, Sir, are you quite sure that your version of the Bible is well translated? <laughs> now that really reinforced an old conclusion in me, an old feeling in me. We all tend to look for reinforcements for our initial conclusions. That by comparison to the dark and tragic and long rift between ourselves and the Christian world. By comparison to that, everything that we are having with the Arabs right now is but a passing episode, here today and gone tomorrow. This Israeli-Arab conflict is an episode. Whereas the standing, dark, dangerous, and violent, and terrible, love, hate, between knight and musician. That thing is going to last for quite, going to be with us for a long time, long after the sound and the fury of the Israeli-Arab conflict is going to be a historical past, a forgotten matter. Well, Sorry for giving you a long answer to that. Obviously, obviously, we did not avoid politics. Mm -hmm. um, um, but let me try and turn it around somewhat, almost, because I think there is an issue here which can lead us back into certain questions about Israeli literature, which um, at least we have some obligation to pay obeisance to because the audience will oblige you to return to your answer to the first question. Good. Uh, another way of seeing the issue that I've tried to put to you 
is that in a number of your novels, where the Jew is, uh, where, you, where you really fight against the whole question of the Jew as some kind of quintessential human being, mm -hmm. as though an abstraction, an essence without flesh and blood. But isn't this an ongoing theme in modern Hebrew literature from uh, Feierberg's La'an, which was published in 1899, to your own crusade or touch the water, touch the wind? It seems to me that this is an ongoing issue and one which is implicit in, the, in your whole exchange with Palma, mm -hmm. uh, namely that there are a series of abstract, almost formulaic mm -hmm. notions of what the Jew is, mm -hmm. not only from the outside, but from the inside, uh, that it's a predicament which is just beginning now mm -hmm. to be sorted out in uh, the modern mm -hmm. Israeli psyche and in modern, modern Israeli literature? It's not even beginning to be sorted out, Arthur. It's an open question. And I suppose the bottom line of my answer would be that a Jew is a Jew is a Jew like a rose is a rose is a rose. And all the Zionist hopes to turn the Jew into whatever some of the initial Zionists, indeed some of the initial writers of contemporary Hebrew literature, produced an almost anti-Semite stereotype of a new Jew, brand new one, a Jewish John Wayne, a Jewish Shegetz, <laughs> a, a replica of our tormentors in the past, that terrible monster stereotype of an Israeli who works out in the fields all day, sun-tamed, then making wild love in the evening, then picking his submachine gun and going out to kill a number of Red Indians or Arabs for the matter before his day is done. This terrible stereotypal monster, which has been sort of... But there was a whole tradition in early Hebrew literature. Mm -hmm. I mean, people like Moshe Smilansky, mm -hmm. who had a completely mm -hmm. romantic relationship to both the land and to the Arabs. Uh, and, and that tradition also is, has an ambivalent stake in your own work. I mean, there are both sides of that question uh, <laughs> uh, in your own work. My dear Arthur, more than just two sides. When you say both sides, I can think easily of at least half a dozen sides. Indeed, some of the early Zionists and some of the early Hebrew writers wanted, if anything, to become Arabs for the biblicality of the Arabs, for the superficial, seeming biblicality of the Arab villagers, simple people who toil the land all day and who know how to fight, and who are biblical in a sense. Luckily, this didn't work. The ambivalence, the ambiguity, the capacity for divided feelings, the uh, ability to lamentation, torment, even self-hatred, is still very much on the scene. But there is one thing which I believe is in the process of changing, and if you want, this is my Zionism A to Z in a nutshell. We don't have and we don't want to worry about what the neighbors think of us. We are done with it. We can afford to quarrel loud in a very Mediterranean way, regardless to what impression it might leave on whoever neighbors. We own a home of our own where we don't, forgive me, we don't give a damn, or at least we shouldn't give a damn, about the way our own family quarrels are interpreted or misinterpreted by the palmas of this world. 
We have everything. We have Jews who want to fulfill the, the Palma vision of a Christian Jew, more Christian than the Christians. We have the violent, the passionate ones, who want to be, imitate our worst tormentors, and everything in between. As far as Hebrew literature is concerned, including my own work, Alpha, there is always and forever an orchestra, a polyphony, rather than a bottom line which one can simply put in a couple of words. Here we are. And I happen to like it this way. As I said when I was working on this present book, and in, the, in a different way when I was working on previous different books, I loved, I had to love or else I couldn't write it. I loved even what I couldn't bear. That's what it is all about. That's what storytelling is all about. Well, taking a slightly different tack, but leading mm -hmm. you into mm -hmm. personal material that I'm sure the the audience is totally unfamiliar with. As a secularist writer, mm -hmm. that is, as an Israeli writer whose mm -hmm. religion is private rather than public and accounted, which is perhaps a fresh way of seeing Israeli secularists, mm -hmm. since even the most passionately secular Israelis can be scratched and their God bleeds, how do you approach the Bible as a primary source of the Hebrew imagination? Well, in the first place, I regard the Bible as the primary source of my language, which happens to be my life. It's just there. Just like the mountains and the desert and the sea, it's there. I can't turn my back to the Bible, even when I try desperately to. It's there on the scene, alive. You get biblical even when you get uh, to talk to a raving atheist, and some of the founders of my own kibbutz happen to be raving furious, enthusiastic atheists, and they get biblical. Their passion is biblical, their language is biblical, biblical even, even their, their anti, what they will call anti-clerical feelings have biblical zeal and passion and fire about them. You can't escape it. It's all over the place, one way or the other. In your case... Provided, Arthur, yeah. let me add that. That the name of the thing forever is interpretations, unlike some other religions. For Jews, the name of the thing has been various interpretations. Judaism, compared to other religions that I know of, had been secretly anarchist, always. And by the same token, let me add, Israel itself is secretly anarchist, and I happen to like it enormously. Every Jew a parshan. Every Jew a parshan, an interpreter. Every Jew a self-appointed prime minister. Every Jew a self-appointed prophet. Every Jew a, a potential messiah. Every Jew knows better. And certainly every Jew a novelist. Well, in this country I'd almost say every novelist a Jew. In your case, Amos, you, you, uh, you left your family and joined your kibbutz at a tender age, mm -hmm. the age of 15. Presumably it was a traumatic revolt. And given the fact of your descent from a distinguished mm -hmm. scholarly, literary, revisionist, and in that simple shorthand, a rightist family, how would you characterize that trauma of separation? <laughs> and why Kibbutz Cholda and the socialist movement? And can you tell us something then about what an adolescent conscience crisis looks mm -hmm. like 
uh, in pre-state Israel? Well, that was not in pre-state Israel. When I left home, Israel was an old country of, what, four or five years? years. An old country. Nonetheless, uh, this event in my life, which I'd call the October Revolution in my life, was my one and only revolutionary attempt. Since then, despite of my reputation with some circles in Israel, the reputation of a raving radical, I've never been one. I had become an evolutionist and a devoted one. I left home, that's true, at 14 or 14 and a half because I was <coughs> raised and educated in a scholarly, right-wing, middle-class, Jewish, Zionist family in a house full of books, forever full of intellectuals discussion, discussing interpretations, accompanied by a secret wish of my father's that I should eventually become a different type of a Jew, a simple, un uncomplicated one. No divided feelings and no sweaty hands. A simple, healthy peasant. My parents even went as far as producing the genetic miracle of having me blonde, although the two of them were dark. <laughs> they really wanted it so badly that they somehow managed it. <laughs> so, at the age of 14 and a half, I left home. I decided to go and live among simple people, uncomplicated peasants, people who do rather than talk. I went to live in Hulda only to discover that it was full of Jewish intellectuals, <laughs> immersed in an endless argument about the meaning of life and the purpose of socialism and the right interpretation of world reforming. And then eventually I find myself sitting in a room full of books, just like my father, writing even more books. So I'd say that, like most escapes, mine was a full circle. And it was bound to be, even if I had managed to become that simple, uncomplicated peasant, I'd still be doing what my father or part of him wanted me to be. There was no way out of it. There were two conflicting and contradicting uh, demands, requests made by my father, especially in a different way by my mother, very different way, that I become a, a son and heir of a great family of scholars and literary people, honor to the family, be a new type of Jew. So I was bound to fulfill and to deliver one way or the other. In fact, I'm doing both driving a tractor in between writing books or writing books in between uh, doing my turn as a waiter in the dining hall. But it, it was a lesson. It was a great education in many ways. Let me ask you this, Amos. What do you see as the task of Israeli fiction? It's virtually impossible to speak of the task of American literature mm -hmm. because the country is too enormous and there is mm -hmm. really not a single mm -hmm. American mm -hmm. literature. There are American literatures mm -hmm. today. But Israel is a small country, mm -hmm. and it's possible to envisage the whole community of writers in your, in mm -hmm. your own mind mm -hmm. and have a sense mm -hmm. of what their personal sense of obligation or tafkid might be, what their duty or function <laughs> is. Uh, does it wish to be a literature of its own nation, or does it, does it wish to be a world literature? And this is an obviously loaded question, since obviously to be the best in one's own tradition already establishes claim upon the world. 
but how do you how do you devise the strategy of the Israeli revolution? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad you have switched in mid-question from the term fiction to the term literature. We don't even have a, have a Hebrew word for fiction. It's an alien concept. We don't write fiction. We write stories or novels or whatever. Books, really, rather than fiction. Really, even a bad word for novel. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a roman. Mm -hmm. Roman. It's, uh, no good for anything. Mm -hmm. um. But essentially, I would say that Israeli literature, for better or worse, had so far, by and large, avoided the entrapment of becoming esoteric, anemic, and bloodless. In, within the Israeli experience, and consequently, within Israeli literature, there is no separation of the private from the public because there is no way of separating the two political or ideological or for the same token, theological problems are personal. Personal in, in the most direct way, questions of life and death. Whether you do or do not agree with a certain interpretation of the Bible or a certain verse in the Bible may become a question of life and death if you happen to belong both to the Gush Emunim or to the Peace Now movements. So we haven't yet and I hope we shall never fall into the uh, entrapment, really, of writing esoteric, anemic, irrelevant tales, uh, full of erudition sometimes, which you get from this country here and there, full of literary arabesques, really books about books about books, or what shall I say, if you take it with a grain of salt, the kind of book about a novelist who lives in an academic uh, campus, fails to produce his next novel, goes to see his analyst about it, and ends up by writing yet another bloodless novel about a novelist who couldn't produce and went to see his analyst. That's not in Israeli literature. Sorry, I'm not, I'm not trying to be sardonic or critical anyone. of... Well, I, I guess I am. In I guess I am. No, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely attacking a certain tendency or trend which is not there in South American literature and not there in contemporary German or, for the matter, in Italian literature, but is very much there, unfortunately, in American Jewish literature. And I'm worried about it. Stories should deal with things elemental. And I said elemental, not elementary. Life and death and love and hate and passion and despair and hope. That's it, more or less, a couple of other things. The moment you sink into clever erudition, that's no storytelling. The magic is gone. Israeli literature, by and large, is public while being private and private while being public because there is no separation. Now we get, of course, our passionate, angry, impatient readers who always read a novel for its bottom line. So what is it all about? Mr. Oz, are you optimistic about? Would you call your novel an optimist one? Do you see the prospect of? Now the thing is that when you write a story set in Israel within the Jewish-Israeli context, you are bound to be ambivalent forever. And of course, uh, many of our readers cannot cope with it. They are not used to books like that.
they're used to bottom lines. They are used to conclusions. Well, this certainly leads into my last two questions before we throw it open. Mm -hmm. Only recently I noticed that in Simon Kriya, which is an Israeli literary mm -hmm. journal of rather substantial importance in Israel, there was an entire issue devoted to American experimental mm -hmm. fiction. Mm -hmm. Flannery O'Connor, Donald Barthelme, Grace Paley, I believe even Pinchon. Hmm. Not a bad selection, but still quirky in its way. What is the interest of Israeli literature in American writing? And what writers in America do you personally follow? Or put another mm -hmm. way, does American writing have any emotional or linguistic interest for your own? Well, speaking for myself, I can't possibly generalize and talk about the no, entire literary community you. in Israel. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Israel's literature is every bit as divided as the country itself. Uh, if you hit the right cafe in Tel Aviv in the right time of the day, at least until a few years ago, you would see the John Dunn of Hebrew poetry and the Lord Byron of Hebrew poetry and the Shelley and Keats of Hebrew poetry sitting along the same table with the Allen Ginsberg of Hebrew poetry. All of them alive and by God kicking hard, all of them on speaking terms or rather on screaming terms with one another, so everything is on the scene. But speaking for myself, my immediate literary mentors are the writers of the great generation of Hebrew literature itself. Brenner, Berdichevsky, Agnon, Gnesin, Bialik, Mendele and the others. Next to them are the Russians whom I can only read in a passionate Hebrew translation, but they are in my genes, the great Russians of the 19th century. When it comes to America, I'm not very up to date. I mean, I read things as much as I can read. But the ones who count to me are Herman Melville, Sherwood Anderson, and, and uh, William Faulkner in this order. Well, then you, you, you absolutely eliminated my next question. Uh, <laughs> You undercut it, which is probably just as well. It was a mean question. I think it's appropriate now to open the floor to questions. But I would ask Amos to <laughs> I would ask Amos to express his own cautionary instinct about such a free exchange. Not that I would imagine he would wish to dictate or censor the questioning but I know that he's quite capable of splendid ferocity, and I would wish to protect some of our American angels <laughs> who know not where to tread from being needlessly brutalized. <laughs> so that I would ask you to be short. I will not permit speeches, and I will interrupt you if you begin with a proem, a prolegomenon to a question about to be answered in five minutes. One question, per questioner, and a question with a question mark will be accepted. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think that's only fair. Mm -hmm. Let me just more add, questions for our money. Let me just add very quickly, Arthur, that I don't happen, I'm sure I don't happen to have the answers to all the questions, and where I can't answer them, I'd simply join them. Fine. But why don't we take questions, and if you come to either of the speakers here to the right or the left with a fairly wide range of questions available. But as I said, questions, not speeches. All right? Do you want, excuse me? What about short statements? Mm. Short statements if they end with a question mark. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think this is really to the point. Yeah. Who wants to begin? 
somebody's leaving before we get a question. Yes, Mr. Menasha. Do you not think that uh, your extreme reaction, understandable extreme reaction, to the uh, Swedish Prime Minister is, com is comparable to uh, the expression of the feelings of the extremists uh, of the right whom you uh, presented in your book uh, and who uh, seemed so terrible uh, in the description of them? No, I don't think so because unlike uh, those uh, uh, partners of conversation in mine in this book, I happen to think that I'm right and I happen to think that they are wrong. But nonetheless, yes, I have enough fire and passion for me to uh, give a line with an exclamation mark at the end of it when the Prime Minister of Sweden deserves it. And I think he did. I think his kind of expectation for Israel to be a Christian nation in the way of turning the other cheek is infuriating. And mind you, I was just that when I did this, these interviews for the book. I mean, when I talked to some of the more outrageous characters, I was shouting and screaming back at the top of my lungs, except that I normally cut it out when I edited the book, but it was all there. Well, you know, there's one thing that bothered me that I raised with you in private, which it seems to me is very appropriate to make clear, and I do hope when the paperback edition of Povasham appears in the United States that you will have a longer preface. I think the uh, American edition should have had a longer preface, as you explained, there was pressure of publication schedule. But the thing that does not come through that you explained to me was that many people were interviewed, but only few were chosen. Mm -hmm. And I think it's extremely uh, <coughs> crucial to make clear something of the criteria uh, of selection. Mm -hmm. What were the criteria? Why did you choose Zed uh, as an example of a particularly outrageous construction, whereas others that might have uh, represented the same point of view but might not have had the same stylistic power mm -hmm. uh, uh, were repudiated or rejected, mm -hmm. not included in the book? Well, that's, I think, stated quite boldly in my short introduction, although you may be right about the necessity to write a longer one for the next English edition. Uh, I was not aiming at writing a so sociological book, uh, giving a cross-section, a first cross-section description of Israel. I definitely went out for the more uh, eloquent, ferocious, powerful voices, regardless to their proportion within the population. That was not what mattered to me. For the same token, I did not go to my sort of people. I was not in the mood of speaking to myself or the likes of me. I really wanted to decipher the grassroots attitudes and feelings of my political and ideological and theological opponents. Of course, I could not stay above it, and at some point in the book, my own voice as a part of this polyphony is heard, and I hope it's heard loud and clear on some issues. But I was not aiming at writing a polemical book either. Well, you weren't aiming at writing representative Israelis. No. I mean, this was no. not an no. example of Ralph Waldo Emerson describing uh, traditional representative types in classic America. I um, don't happen to believe that anyone in Israel is representative. 
Every Israeli is representative only of himself or herself, and even this is not always consistent. I am representative of myself only on lucky hours. And in different moods, I am representative of myself in different ways. Different times of the day sometimes, depending on the last news uh, reel on the radio. Depending on whether I am talking to a mad Israeli hawk or talking to Prime Minister Palma of Sweden, for the matter. Questions? Yeah. You describe your reaction to Olaf Palme uh, as an almost spiteful, enraged mm -hmm. one. But do you ever feel like apologizing for Israel, protecting it or explaining its policies in your encounters with the so-called Christians? Or are you, in fact, able to represent outside Israel the same position that you have in Israel, which is the opposition or the internal opposition? Absolutely. I mean, it's... Are you through or have you no, got another I one? I have another question that's related. Uh, I would also like to know why not explain Israeli pluralism and socialism to the Christians rather than the Bible, which is a, just as much an inheritance of modern Israel as the Bible is. Yeah. Well, pluralism and socialism are not necessarily uh, interchangeable. Socialism, Israeli socialism, or for the same token, biblical socialism, is part of the pluralism or the plural plurality of interpretations, a legitimate part. Happens to be my beloved part, but not necessarily the representative one. Now look, uh, I don't really write in order to present Israel to the outside world. I write in order to sort things out in my own mind. Moreover, when I'm in a total agreement with myself, I write an angry polemical article in a newspaper. It's only when I'm in a slight disagreement with myself and have at least two voices with me that I'm beginning to feel that I'm pregnant with a story or a novel. It's this latent civil war, verbal civil war, not only in Israel in general, but in me, which makes me work. Now, I do try, when I'm here or in other countries, to convey the amazing fact that despite of Israel's deep, painful divisions, there is an overwhelming integral. I think I have tried to convey just this in this present book by describing how, when I came to a, an obviously hostile community like Beit Shemesh, where people said to me that I should be hanged, drawn, shot at, and quartered for being what I am, a leftist, a defeatist, a kibbutznik, you name it. Those people who said that to me at the same time were embracing me with a very warm Mediterranean hospitality, insisting on paying for my coffee, saying that, they, that I deserve to get hanged, but really wanting to um, put me straight or even to save my soul. I tried as much as I could to convey the fact that this is a family business in the deepest sense of the word. And this journalistic, you would say, non-fiction book is in many ways a substitute for a 19th century family saga about a large, vast, divided, painfully divided family where everybody screams, nobody listens, and yet everybody is extremely passionate about everyone. That's what I was trying to convey. 
I mean, the very fact that uh, Israelis give each other ulcers and heart attacks, but they didn't have and they do not have and they are do not, not likely to have a civil war. And I want you to bear in mind that I try to convey precisely this point when I talk to people in this country or other countries outside Israel, that whereas other nations, including so-called civilized nations, have only managed to establish their identity, their common ethos to some degree, the rules of the game, including in this blessed America, only managed to establish through all that, through rivers of blood and fire, civil wars. We Israelis, of course, not immune for episodes of political violence, but essentially, it's a Jewish civil war with Jewish artillery, Jewish victims, Jewish uh, casualties, namely verbal. Now this, I think, uh, comes through in this book, in my other books, in a different way, and in every single talk, conversation, or argument I am having outside Israel. Yes, please. Yes. Do you not think that Jewish expectations, in contrast to Christian expectations, have a right to hope that Israel will be somewhat of a litmus paper for our own Jewish ethical standards? And don't you think that the biblical socialism, as you call it, has led to your dovish outlook? Hmm. Well, I do have to admit that I have a bit of a divided feelings about this business of great expectations from Israel. Whereas I myself openly expect Israel to be the best, most civilized, most progressive country with the highest ethical uh, values in the world, I get wild when I receive the same expectations from outsiders, including non-Israeli Jews. I mean, who are they to expect me to do that? I don't mind receiving any amount of political criticism from the outside world, including from Jewish communities. Political criticisms are fair enough. But when I get, so to speak, theater reviews, I get infuriated, even when those uh, reviews happen to correspond with some of my own gut feelings. It's different when you are there, actually on the stage, where if you go wrong, you may pay with your life or your children's lives for your mistake. And it's different again when it comes from do-gooders and well-meaning people who would have assumed that Israel, being a, a Jewish country, is supposed to be this and that rather than that and this. So, uh, fair enough, Israelis, including myself, may have great expectations. Jews outside Israel, to the extent that they are involved with Israel, part of the family, express their solidarity. If not by making Aliyah, by coming to Israel, then at least by learning Hebrew. If not by lear learning Hebrew, then at least by getting personally involved. They are all right, they are part of the family. But when it comes from uh, cozy viewers somewhere in a faraway audience, who are they? What right have they got? Um, or to put it in a different way. Let me not put it in a different way. <laughs> yes, please. No, this gentleman has, I acknowledged him, and you'll be right next. Mm -hmm. Please. Would you agree with that essay written recently by the Israeli Hebrew critic Mikhaili, mm -hmm. who discusses the problem of why there are so few readers in Israel of contemporary Hebrew fiction? 
And he, answered, he tries to answer the question by saying that they write stories which are full of symbolism, they are esoteric, and they have a hidden meaning. <laughs> and, I, must, I want to add that, that I read recently four stories by four Israeli writers, one by Urpaz, one Sh uh, Shaha, and uh, Bear, and one even by Appelfeld. And mm -hmm. all the four stories, which were published in the New Journal now called Sharim, all the four stories are full with symbolism. They have hidden meaning, and for the average reader cannot understand them because they, <laughs> imitate, because they imitate the experimental writings. Now, do you agree with Michaeli or about, the, about these four writers? No, I don't. And if I were in the habit of arguing with critics, which I am not, I would have said that we get more shameless and guttural storytelling in Israel than in most other countries, without necessarily rating the quality of it. It's for your judgment. No, I'd call the writers you have just mentioned, or Paz and uh, Appelfeld and the others, shameless storytellers rather than, than uh, allegorical writers. I don't really know what you mean by symbolism. Hidden meaning, well, life sometimes have a couple of hidden meanings, you know, or so it looks. Plus which, uh, one thing you didn't talk about, which I think is certainly, forgive me, an appropriate question at this juncture, is Hebrew, unlike uh, the number of words that are added to the English language annually, is extremely few. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, the, the poor, desperate American Heritage Dictionary has to take the worst crap in, in order to expand its lexicographical mm -hmm. Uh, reach each time it publishes a new edition. Whereas in Hebrew, the Vat HaLashon, the Academy of uh, uh, Arts and Letters, the endless innovation in the Hebrew language, both syntactically as well as in terms of the simple process of naming, mm -hmm. goes on and on and on. It's a very young language, and it seems to me that, it's, that it doesn't even know whether it's experimenting mm -hmm. yet. Uh, because precisely the kind of self-consciousness with an accepted, sealed canon in the language isn't yet there. I mean, you're inventing language all the time. Everyone is. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad you have raised this question of the language. I don't know man how many of you people know Hebrew. I'm glad you have raised the question because although I've never been chauvinistic about the country, I'm a bit of a chauvinist about the language. Contemporary Hebrew is Elizabethan, in a sense. One can still legislate within the language, take wild liberties with it, do things to the Hebrew which English would hardly tolerate even from a mad Irishman or from a William Faulkner. By comparison, Hebrew is a melting lava, a continuous earthquake, a volcano at work with various geolo geological strata exposed to be watched simultaneously. It is a marvelous, marvelous musical instrument. Uh, and admittedly, of course, English is a lot richer, but it hasn't got nearly as unsettled, really, unfinalized as contemporary Hebrew is, which is a marvelous asset of the Hebrew and which is bound to lose almost in every translation, even in the best ones. So uh, if I'm making any point at all, my point is learn Hebrew and do it quickly, just for sheer fun and delight. 
And I don't mind sounding like a missionary for, for the Hebrew language. Well, you converted me long ago. <laughs> yes, please. Three very simple questions, which I fear verge on the political, but uh, I'm not a very literary fellow. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, is among the many translations in work on your book uh, in, pro in progress now an Arabic translation? And secondly, if it is, would sale and possession of that book be permitted in the Israeli-occupied uh, territories in dispute? And third, if your parents, by sheer will, had decided not to produce a blonde Jew, but perhaps had produced an Arab Israeli or an Israeli Arab, and you had written your latest book or other books uh, in the Arabic language, do you think it would be likely that their publication would be permitted or their sale or possession would be encouraged uh, by the government uh, in the areas such as the West Bank? Well, to give you three short and quick answers. A, no, none of my books was ever published in an Arab country, although a few were translated, a few stories were translated in Arabic for Israeli Arab readers, but they are of course forbidden in Arabic countries. B, if I would have been uh, an Arabic writer, I would have had a very good chance of being translated into Hebrew simply because every significant contemporary Arab novel has been already translated into Hebrew. And C, as far as the occupied territories on the West Bank and Gaza are concerned, they can get and read everything I can get and read. They are not always having the full freedom of expression, which is a different problem. Uh, some of the contemporary Arab writers on the West Bank and Gaza were uh, painfully censored by the Israeli military government, which I deeply regret and which I angrily fight in my own country. But there is no question of censoring reading. They can read anything. They can translate anything into Arabic from Hebrew. They cannot translate certain things uh, uh, from or transport or import certain Arabic words from the Arab countries around. Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, in an excerpt of, of your latest book that was published in a, <coughs> in a weekly review here, uh, which I think did show a tremendous intellectual honesty that you mentioned yourself in terms of publishing the views of, of the people in this village. Uh, a number of them commented that, <coughs> that they felt that Begin was a profound and, and wise ruler, mm -hmm. and that they felt a tremendous frustration in that, and I think one of the reasons they welcomed you like they did is that you were willing to listen to him, and that to them was, was an unusual treat. Uh, my question is, for many of us who feel that Begin is a <coughs> profound and, and wise ruler, and history will treat him as such, where, where are the Israeli writers that are, are writing the biographies of, of, of Begin or taking the position and it was a valid position that uh, could be taken in that regard. Well, this is more than just one question. In the first place, I was delighted to discover while gathering the uh, interviews for this book that even the most enthusiastic Beguinites in his very own constituency were not blind admirers of his. In fact, 
all of them, when it came to a person-to-person -person conversation with me, were privately eager to have, if possible, only five minutes with Mr. Begin so as to give him the right ideas. And mind you, some of them had the right ideas. And that's what I mean by saying that the country is secretly anarchist. Now, I am openly opposed to Begin's policies on many things. Territories, economy, war and peace, the Lebanon thing. But I have no doubt in my mind that the man is, or was perhaps, I wish to say, is authentic. The man is a true and sincere representative of a certain gut tendency in present time Israel. The fact that he was promoted into an honorary North African is not the result of him being a fluent spokesman and having some kind of populistic influence on those people. It is a result of the fact that he was a sincere manifestation of some of the truest and deepest feelings of especially of the North African community in Israel. Now, I think that those people are wrong in their political conclusions. I think they are wrong to themselves in supporting Begin or his successor for the same token. But I have no doubt in my mind that he truly represented their feelings and that there was an initial innocent sin committed by the socialist East European funding fathers of Israel in trying to reshape the entire Sephardi, mostly North African community, and turn those people as quickly as possible into East Europeans, assuming that Yiddishkeit is Judaism, to put it in a nutshell. Now, they were wrong, innocently wrong. They really meant well. But they inflicted a lot of, yes, insult and fury, as I have entitled this particular article. Well, one, of, one of the interviewees, uh, I think very eloquently, through your language, stated that when the opposition party, the Labour Party, was in power, Begin and his colleagues and his fellow party members, uh, while in opposition, were supportive in a constructive way. And even among these uh, Sephardic, supposedly not uh, too well-educated people, there was the understanding, I thought a very insightful understanding, that Israel is a small country. And even though it does have the right, and you, in, the, in fact, the requirement to, to discuss these things within itself, it also, unfortunately, through no fault of its own, is very dependent on countries larger and uh, on which Israel has no control over. Mm -hmm. So I think the point that one of your interviewees made was, look, uh, when you were in power, we had very strongly held views the opposite way, but we weren't destructive in a way that went for the jugular. And look mm -hmm. what you're doing to us now. Look what you're doing to Israel and the world scene. And you're, you're inflicting a harm to us mm -hmm. To, to us, we Israelis, far beyond a political difference. And it has to be viewed by the outside world. Mm -hmm. I don't mean this to be a speech, but your own interview, mm -hmm. I thought, brought up a point that I'd like to have you address. Well, ironically enough, it so happened that while uh, Israel had a socialist government, it had to undergo no less than four or five wars, which obviously the Begin opposition endorsed enthusiastically. It's easy enough. Uh, no wonder that when Begin and his government conducted the most controversial war in the history of Israel, the one in Lebanon, which created a true and sincere rift in the standing national consensus, namely the kind of consensus that Israel only goes to war over questions of life and death, 
not beyond that. No wonder that the opposition couldn't be patriotic in the sense that the previous opposition could be. But the true test case to your question is the loyalty of the Labour opposition when it came to peace, when Begin, of all people, signed the peace treaty with Egypt and only managed to do it through a massive support from the Labour opposition. In this respect, it was every bit as patriotic and loyal, above partisan considerations, as Begin's opposition at the time used to be when it was a matter of launching war. Thank you. Richard Hayes. Uh, forgive me, I hope this uh, question does not seem ungracious or impertinent, and I know you are a novelist writing in a special urgency in a special time, but uh, could you give us any idea, Mr. Oz, if there is anything that is uh, gracious and uh, contemplative or pensive or charming, not necessarily at all in a superficial sense, in Israeli literature and life? And in conjunction with uh, that, uh, would you acknowledge that sometimes, as a non-Jew and a non-Israeli, that it is, to some degree, this habitual and incessant screaming at the top of one's voice, which rather reminds me sometimes of growing up in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. that uh, does fatigue certain readers and certain, um, uh, certain sensibilities even. I mean, does it, mm. I, I don't I hear a, a, a rustle of acrimony, but uh, I also think, too, that, for example, your, your observation about a divided uh, person and self, I mean, that is true of every one of us. I am uh, one person talking to a sane friend and another one uh, talking to a psychotic one two hours later. Um, I mean, I've, I think of a poet like Kavafi, for example. I mean, is there, is there anything besides this habitual combative quality and screaming at the top of one's voice, as it were? Mm -hmm. There doubtless is, but I suppose we just don't hear about it. No Jane Austen in Israel hmm. yet. <laughs> no, not quite. Give us, let's, let's make a deal. Give us a couple of peaceful centuries, and we shall hopefully produce a couple of Jane Austens. But uh, this business of being passionate, uh, this business of being extremely emotional, is probably part of our sincere and genuine tribal heritage. In this respect, the Bible itself is almost all the time of, of, of at the top of the voice of whoever, the prophets, the kings, the patriarchs. The kind of uh, Western, possibly Anglo-Saxon, understating civilization had not become part of us. And personally, I do not regret it. In this respect, we belong in the South American, the Mediterranean, and the Russian Slavonic family, rather than in the Anglo-Saxon family. But you don't have a Chekhov, or you don't have a Tregenia, or you don't have a... Well, that's kind of unfair. Mind you, we have only been on the scene for a few decades. No, I'm not talking mm. about Well, I would say that contemporary Israeli literature definitely hasn't got a Chekhov 
or a Tolstoy, but it's every bit as close, or if you wish, every bit as far from having one as contemporary American literature is. <laughs> but I mean, without, without becoming involved in either, you know, the, the kind of debate over uh, national excellence, uh, a poet like Yehuda Amichai is certainly a poet, a, a superlative love poet, a lyric poet, essentially not a poet of the political order, mm -hmm. uh, not a poet uh, who represents, uh, uh, as, as I read him, an ideological camp, but essentially a lyric poet, uh, as was a poet like Batmiriam or Nathan Altaman, or mm -hmm. I can think, mm -hmm. I think it's probably truer at this moment of the poets mm -hmm. than it is of the short story writers mm -hmm. or the novelists who, um, by virtue simply of the form and the nature of the community to which the fiction writer addresses mm -hmm. him or herself is, a, is reflective of the embattled character of the society. Mm -hmm. So that you don't have, I mean, as close as you come to it, if you want a domestic mm -hmm. novel, is, is almost his novel uh, Michal Shali, which is essentially the political uh, catastrophe is, is, is always napping at the borders <coughs> of mm -hmm. the fiction, but the fiction is not about ideology and politics. Thank you, Arthur. That was a kind uh, no, help. But let me add to this. Uh, well, true enough, when you write a directly political, polemical novel, it's usually a poor substitute for a flat, direct statement. And I never believed in writing a novel as a substitute for a political statement. But when you capture half a dozen passionate, different, political, ideological, and theological attitudes, you may not be in the footsteps of Jane Austen, but you may well be in the footsteps of William Shakespeare. It's all there, and it's English all right, isn't it? I would make one other comment, yeah, and Richard, well, mm -hmm. I, I, would, yes, I, would, I would make one observation, which I think is important to point out. Virtually every Israeli novelist writes for an Israeli newspaper. We do not have this tradition in the United States, since we do not have a party press, alas. <laughs> that is to say, we have a press which is virtually monolithic. Whether you go, I mean, it, it, it can be a well-written New York Times, mm -hmm or an abrasively written Chicago Tribune, or a boringly written Chicago Sun-Times, mm -hmm. in which there may be gradations of political spectrum. Mm -hmm. But finally, there's no room for the mm -hmm. feuilleton. There is no tradition of the short prose piece out of which mm -hmm. Karl Kraus comes, out of which the whole tradition of, uh, of, of Israeli short breath writing comes. Uh, this man, whenever he gets bored working on a novel, can always send in a piece to Amariv or Hadavar and know that he's going to get 50 telephone calls the next day threatening to kill him or celebrate him. And fortunately, he has the kibbutz guards to keep everyone away. But I mean, that's a nice setup. But we don't have this. And to add to this, just a very short remark. These are very different traditions. I mean, within the domain of at least contemporary Anglo-American literature, the writer is for better or worse, I'm afraid for worse, regarded as a very subtle entertainer. 
or expected to be a very subtle entertainer. Where? Whereas within our tradition, within our tradition, that is the Jewish, and if you wish, Jewish dash Slavonic, dash Mediterranean tradition, the writer is, for better or worse, expected to be an heir of the prophets. It's difficult to live up to it, but that's the kind of expectation you confront. Yes, please. Yeah, uh, a couple questions. One is, uh, during the early parts of the war in Lebanon, many New York Times and network news broadcasts were prefaced with the statement, this report was censored by the Israeli government. I was wondering what you thought of this apparent uh, restriction of free press. Second, uh, can, you, can you repeat this, please? Sure. Uh, during the early parts of the war in Lebanon, many New York Times and network news broadcasts were prefaced with the statement, this report was censored by the Israeli government. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was wondering what you thought of this apparent restriction of free press. Second no. question is... is no, for one at a time. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, sure. he has to recover from the first question yeah. before <laughs> we can move uh, on to the second. A, I don't. I think that uh, while a war is going on, including this war which I objected wholeheartedly right from the outset, you would not expect the censorship to uh, allow the publication or the uh, filming or the covering of things which may endanger the very lives of the combat units. You in Happy America may not be fully aware of this. You only just now had the greatest military victory you had since uh, World <laughs> War II. Uh, but uh, the, the key issue is not the amount of actual... You said it. It was. <laughs> As we but uh, the key issue is not the amount of coverage which this or that war gets, but the actual justification of it. And this is what the essential rift in Israeli public opinion was all about, and this got all the coverage in the world. Absolutely. Sometimes a hysterical coverage in this country. I mean to give you but one example about the neurotic uh, attitude of American public opinion makers, not necessarily of American people, but of American public opinion makers to Israel. There was a piece of news the other day also in the world news page of the Washington Post about four uh, olive tree saplings in an Arab village on the West Bank, uprooted allegedly by Gushemunim settlers from a nearby Jewish settlement. Terrible thing. But mind you, World News, Washington Post, four olive trees uprooted. Now, no doubt Israelis are getting a little nervous about the kind of, of really expectations and for the same token coverage. This has nothing to do with censorship. This has to do with the things we have discussed before. Actually, the second question you just answered, I was going I to ask you about the U.S. reporting well, of, could we, of could Israel. We yes, mm -hmm. please. Uh, I have actually uh, one question, but it relates, and I'm sorry it didn't come just on top of the other uh, gentleman over here. When he spoke about your writing at a special, uh, in a special urgency at a special time, and that is a time that is now and a very urgent time, I think, mm -hmm. in Israeli history. But uh, I want to 
speak to you about, he said, don't you think that uh, sometimes this sheer urgency, I mean, uh, but I would like to put it in terms of the passion that you speak so much about. Sometimes that this passion fatigues certain uh, elements or certain supporters of Israel. Now, I will give you an example. I, for instance, came from a movement also, and I wrote a book about this movement. And, but when I came from this movement and when I came, well, out of the South to seek support for whatever this mm -hmm. cause, I was like uh, shell-shocked, you know? Everybody, I came as a fundraiser and as a speaker, and I traveled all over the country raising money. And when people came to me and they said to me, you know, you should write a book about your experiences. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, maybe, you know, I would do that. But I knew at the time that I was too bitter, I was too passionate, that it wouldn't come out properly. So I just said, in the future. But I let this intense passion, this intense heat die down where I could reason, you understand, and deal with it. And when you compare, and when I think, you, when you compare yourself to Russian writers, for instance, he say you don't have a Chekhov or you don't have, I mean, I think it's sometimes this passion uh, has a tendency to work in a very, very negative effect mm -hmm. in Israeli literature. And I'll give you another example also. I come to it from Could another we get the aspect. Question. Okay, yes. Right, good. Um, don't you think, I mean, just for instance, one more thing. For instance, right now with what's happening in Israel, I mean, we had uh, first uh, 230 Americans killed in the bombing, then 50 whatever Frenchmen, then 30 some Israelis. And uh, right away, I mean, Israel, they strike back, bang, bang, just like that. I mean, this intense passion, it's almost not reasoning, you know what I mean? And not the French, they maul over what they will do. Even the Americans are trying to be cool, you understand? But I think sometimes the intensity within this urgency that this gentleman talks about, I mean, mm -hmm. and I'm a friend, I think, to Israel and to all causes because mm -hmm. I come from one, but it works, don't you think it worked too negatively, I mean, considering the present day situation? Mm -hmm. Well, you may have a point there in one thing. The sense of urgency is impending. It's what? Impending, you can't help it. You have to bear in mind that for us Israelis, the key issues are really life and death, not just way of life or meaning of life or significance of life or even civil rights. It's life and death, individually, literally. No doubt we tend to be sometimes highly emotional and some of my governments tend to be sometimes irrational. Now I try personally, with all my powers of restraint, to be rational about this irrationality. To be, while studying fanaticism and combating against fanaticism, not to contract fanaticism myself. Writing about those things of life and death involved, involves, as I said before, a very difficult combination of ice and fire. Of what? Ice and fire. Uh -huh. 
I mean, you have to be totally absorbed in it, a passionate part of it all, and at the same time, write about it as if you lived on a different planet. We'll take two more questions, this gentleman and one other, and then thank you, we'll say thank you. But one more, and then one Mr. more. Mr. Oz, uh, you mentioned the Arab-Israeli uh, conflict as a passing episode in the Jew, when you mentioned the difference between a Jew and a Christian. Isn't nationalism a passing episode also? I mean, when you, I especially ask this question because when you argued with the man from Bushem Munim, you said to him, we wanted to be Zionist, a nation like na any other with similar expectations. Is it something we really desire that much? Well, nationalism itself, I'd love to think, is a passing episode. I'd be only happy to live in a world where there are 100 different civilizations and cultures and traditions and not a single nation state. But again, if I have to put my Zionism A to Z in a nutshell, I would say, as long as the name of the game for every other people in the world is nationhood, I feel I am compelled to play the bloody game according to its bloody rules. We Jews have performed to the world, not necessarily out of our own volition, but we have performed to the world. My own kind of utopia, a civilization without nation states. What I regard as the next phase in world history. What I would wish for mankind to opt for. Nobody followed. Some applauded, some admired us for this, some loathed us, some just occasionally slain the actor of this monodrama. Never again shall I consent to be the pioneer of the, the eternal pioneer of universal uh, post-nationalistic era. I'd be delighted to be the fifth in the Middle East or the tenth in the world to join a post-nationalistic, post-territorial world. But for the life of me, I'm not going to be the first one and certainly not the only one again, not that. I've had enough. The last question, Cynthia. Um, Mr. Oz, um, your last comment was, um, like all your comments, passionate. And we've had here, uh, this is a question about national character, because we've had here many descriptions now, or several descriptions, of the Israeli or perhaps Jewish, quote, tribal uh, character. And we've had an, a number of characterizations of them. I remember living through last summer, uh, reading and feeling the barrage of the, uh, not negative, but uh, sanguine, optimistic American uh, press, uh, reading the views of the um, charming WASP uh, personality, and I felt so much hysteria. I was living in a stew pot, a madhouse. I was living at the time of the Dreyfus Affair in Paris last summer. As time recedes, we get this perspective more and more. What went on by, excuse me, I don't mean last summer. I mean the summer of 1982, the summer of the Israeli invasion. Uh, what was happening here in the press and the media was unspeakable. It was a shame for America. So my question is, and I'm not an assaulter of America. I'm a proud American. 
My question is, can you give us your view of the American character now that we've heard the American view of the Israeli character? Well, I visited this country many times. I've only lived here the longest period ever was six weeks. I know America through its literature. I think America is the worst country in the world, save for most others. But uh, yes, I do agree, Cynthia, that Americans tend to be somewhat childish on international affairs. Childish in the way of wanting an immediate answer solution, possibly even a redeeming formula for everything. Wanting the world to fall neatly into departments, goodies and baddies and so on. Being, if anything, very, very impatient and perhaps unimaginative about the world scene, including the Middle East. The question I have been confronting time and again since I came here was, all right, so what's your solution? Or, Mr. Oz, what is going to happen in a couple of years, always a couple of years, in your part of the world? Of course, I had to put a sagely smile on my face and say it's hard to be a prophet in the land of the prophets. But then this American, yes, you may be right in using the term hysterical need to resolve everything immediately, may be based on a misconception of conflicts, on individual level as well as on international level. Conflicts usually do not solve through a magic formula or through a smashing act. Conflicts between individuals as well as between nations normally die down with bitterness and fatigue and exhaustion rather than solve through finding a magic formula followed by a Dostoevskian scene of loving kindness and brotherly love by, by the, all the parties to the conflict. Now, in some senses, this is a very happy country. You have never been invaded. Your very existence had never been at stake as Americans. The, the, the uh, horrors of Existential threats, save for the universal uh, fear of, of nuclear war, but the existential threat to your immediate existence as America is something you have never experienced. Nor have you been through any uh, gut conflict over really life and death, save for the times when you volunteered to save the souls of the rest of the world, sometimes in the most admirable way. But people in America very often fail to understand the complexity, the viciousness, the, um, if you wish, comical nature of world affairs. And they get, <laughs> if anything, even more emotional and impatient than the Israelis wanting an immediate answer to every question. And if they ca can't find an answer to a problem, they go out and smash the problem. And when they see others trying to do just that, that is smashing a pro problem instead of solving it, 
They scream out loud, why smash the problem in this way, or why smash it at all, or why not smash it enough, or whatever. So there is something about the pace and rhythm of history, which I think is widely misunderstood by Americans, and in a different way may widely mis be misunderstood by Israeli Jews nowadays. Uh, perhaps we need to take one more question so that I can end up with a more optimistic or cheerful notion. Do you have an upbeat question? Yeah. Mm -hmm. How did Israel survive between Egypt and Babylonia? Uh -huh. <laughs> how did Israel survive between Egypt and Babylonia? I don't have a simple answer to how Israel did survive between Egypt and Babylonia, but perhaps the answer to that lies in the fact that the ancient Israelites were a lot more capable of suffering a historical calamity than those two superpowers in the past. That it was all in their books, and that whereas where other civilizations, once they lost the, their territories, had nowhere to withdraw, Israelis or Israelites withdrew to their books. So books may be the answer to your question. I think that's an excellent... I want to thank Alma Salls and Arthur Cohen and remind you all there's a reception back at Penn, 11th and 5th. Thank you.